Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. This is episode 13 in the book of John, titled, Eat My Flesh, Drink My Blood, from John chapter 6, verses 52 through 71. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we had to cut the podcast off in the middle of Jesus' discourse. (laughs) He was talking about how he was the bread that came down from heaven. Mm -hmm. And in this section, he's going to kind of ratchet up the heat Mm. on these people following him. And he's going to tell them that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, Mm. they will not have life. Can you give us some of the contours of the text that we're going to see? Yeah, what we saw last time is is how much our souls must have a living, genuine encounter with Christ, a, a feeding on Christ if we are going to live. And that's why Jesus came down. He came down from heaven for this, to give his, himself for the life of the world. And so we have this statement, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So that's what he's talking about. Come to me equals believe in me. And that's what we must do. And that's, he's going to use different language. And you said he's going to ratchet it up. And it's going to be challenging to try to understand what he means. But it's going to amount to the same thing. Come to Jesus equals believe in him equals feed on him equals eat and drink of him. It's all the same thing. It's, it's a living, genuine encounter by faith with Christ. And if you do that, you'll live forever. And if you don't, you will die. And so, you know, for me as a believer, I just want to understand this. I also think as we discuss the the ratcheting up of the language and how difficult it was for them to hear and how difficult it is for us to explain what it means, um, we can see how Christ really does test us and challenge us in the Word of God and in life. And the genuine followers will survive all of those challenges and still be there when the when the dust settles believing in Jesus and proving his words that he's not going to lose anybody. Well, I'm going to read verses 52 through 71. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you." Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate, and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, 
Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. I want to circle back to verse 52. How do you think the Jews understood his statement that the bread that he gave for the life of the world was his flesh? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they, and we see this regularly in John's Gospel, Jesus speaks spiritual analogies and the people hear him physically. Nicodemus did this with you must be born again. Uh, before that, in chapter 2, the Jews did this with destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He was speaking of his own body, not speaking of the physical temple they were, where they were worshiping. Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be, you know, get in his mother's womb and be born? You know, that's impossible. Uh, to the Samaritan woman, you know, if, if you would ask me, I would give you living water. And she said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She's just looking at it, at it uh, very physically. And so when, when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, they absolutely clearly took him physically and it made no sense. It was offensive to them. I mean, keep in mind, uh, first of all, just cannibalism. And let's just get the word out there. <laughs> ugly backdrop of this statement, the simplest way of understanding it is eating a human being. That's the definition of cannibalism is, is offensive to almost every human being on the face of the earth. It's disgusting, morally reprehensible. But for the Jews, there's the added layer of the fact that they weren't even allowed to eat animal blood. I mean, they had to drain the blood out of animals. And so they were very careful to not eat blood because Leviticus made it plain that the blood was given for atonement, which I think is exactly what Jesus is talking about, is his blood is for the atonement of sins. But when he uses eat and drink language with this, it's a combination of factors that just trips their circuit breakers. It's just, it, it's... It's offensive. It's impossible to understand. They're arguing. This doesn't make any sense. It's like he's crazy, like he's a crazy person. At one point, uh, not here, but others, I say he's, a, he's, a, he's demon-possessed, you know, because the things he said just didn't make any sense. And so I think they, they took it physically, and it made no sense and was offensive to them. Yeah, definitely very offensive. I don't know if this plays in, but I was reading a commentary on Exodus. I think it was by Stuart, and he was talking about the prohibition against drinking blood, and and he argued that it was a it was a pagan thing to drink the blood of the animals, mm. and that they somehow believed that they were getting life from whatever thing they killed. You know, and so uh, God basically Yahweh said, "You cannot do that because your life comes from me." Mm. And I, as I look at Jesus' statement, I wonder if there's a little bit of that backdrop there that Jesus is saying. All your spiritual vitality in life must come from my blood, from my sacrifice. That's a great analogy. I had not, th- I had not heard that before. But it's pretty clear that he is talking about spiritual life-giving work on his part. Right. He came to give life, not death. Moses, they ate and died. I came down that you may eat and not die. So that means life. And so he's giving, and he actually says it, I give my flesh and my blood for the life of the world. So he's giving himself up so that they may live. Now, verse 52 is one of the most clear statements on the exclusivity of Christ that you can find. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So what is the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ? And what, is it, what does this verse mean? Right, I think we've been interpreting the eat the flesh and drink the blood statement as to believe in Jesus, to believe that his death on the cross, his bloody death on the cross was necessary for our salvation, because we deserve to die, sufficient for our salvation, uh, effective for our salvation, and we came, we come and personally immerse ourselves in it by faith and partake in it. So 
what he's saying, okay, if, if that's what, he, what he's talking about here, if you do not do that, you're dead. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You have no life in you. Conversely, if you do it, then you are alive. You'll live forever. I'll raise you up at the last day. That's the very thing he's been saying. That is eternal life. That is salvation. It all comes down to dealing, first and foremost, with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, properly. You can't sidestep him, can't ignore him. There's no other savior. There's no one else who shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice. He is it. He is the savior of the world. There is no other. And you have to deal with him or die or be lost. Jesus multiple times in this passage mentions eternal life and the resurrection on the last day. Mm -hmm. Why is that such a big deal for us? Why is it such a big deal for yeah. Jews in the first century? Yeah, so it's it's going to be very vital. We'll see it in John 11 uh, with Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, we're under the death penalty. As descendants of Adam, we are going to die. If we're not in that mysterious final generation when Jesus returns, we will die. You and I will die. And and they knew that. They, they saw it. They saw loved ones die. Children died. Spouses died. Parents died. You know, grandparents died. They saw it. They knew uh, we're dealing with the issue of death, and Jesus came to address that. He came to die that we might live. And so he says again and again, so encouraging in this text, he's going to raise us up. So we saw in the last chapter, he's going to call to us in our graves, and we're going to hear his voice and come out, and we're going to rise to live. And so he gave his life, his death, uh, his bloody death on the cross, was the ground of our forgiveness, our reconciliation with God, and then the power of God unleashed on our physical bodies to raise us up into resurrection bodies. He will raise us up at the last day. He says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So what does this imply about other foods and drinks? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, I, I don't know. There's all kinds of junk that we eat all the time. I, you know, there's processed foods that are delicious and all that, but they're just terrible for your body. But I think if we set that aside and just even look at healthy foods, physical foods, you know, I, I, I think we would have to imagine that the manna was like the perfect food, you know, it was all they needed. So you can imagine the Lord being the perfect nutritionist, knew what kind of vitamins and minerals and, you know, what was necessary to keep these people alive for 40 years. But they still died. They ate it and died. And so... All the physical stuff, and like Paul's talking about, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and, and he gives them the slogans, you know, he said, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul says, yeah, it's true, but God's going to destroy them both. They're both temporary. Physical food and the stomach that consumes it, they're both temporary. We're all, it's all corruptible. But what I come to give you, the food that I come to give you is incorruptible. It's eternal. And so my food, the food I give, and the eating that, that I'm talking about here, now that's true life. That's true food and true drink. Yeah, I often think of this just against the backdrop of all the the passions that people seek to find meaning. You know, some seem more noble than others, you know. Yeah. Uh, maybe some people could be searching self-fulfillment in religion, yeah. uh, in false religion. Some people could be great humanitarians. Yeah. Some people could seek fulfillment in business. But all of these are ultimately foods that yeah. uh, do not satisfy. Yeah. Right? They leave people very empty in the end. It's true. You know, I, I think about uh, one of my favorite uh, movies of all time is uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Franco Zeffirelli film made in the mid-1970s. does a great job. Um, it's really pretty scripturally accurate, not perfect. There are no perfect 
depictions, but it's really good. And and my one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is the feeding of the five thousand. And the, in the movie, uh, the director zeroes in on Mary Magdalene, the the prostitute. Um, Bible says out of out of her that Jesus had uh, driven, I think, seven demons, something like that. But at this point, she's not had any interaction with Jesus. She doesn't has not been with him at all, face to face, whatever. She just heard about him. And she's, you know, she's a prostitute and she's talking to a man that she's with. And and he says, you've got to go see this Jesus. He's a friend of prostitutes, you know, and, and he'll, you can get to know him. It's like, ah, you know, men forgive other men's sins, but they don't forgive women's sins. And, and she's very cynical, very hardened. And she's, she's desperate. She's looking for something. She's empty. Um, but she ends up following the crowd and, and she's, she looks at these people coming back uh, from being with Jesus and they've been healed and they're crying out with joy and she's just taking all this in but then she sees this huge crowd and she can't get any closer to Jesus and so she finally just sits down in the in the heat and, and just waits and she's got a frustrated look on her face and she's in pain she's searching she's struggling she's hurting and then at some point she gets some barley loaf and some fish they're in her hand and she's like how did I how did this fall into my lap and and she understands they're calling out what's happened that that Jesus has done a miracle and it's you can you can sense that the bread is hot it's fresh it's like it's miraculous bread it's just physical bread and she puts it to her mouth and rips off a piece and starts to chew it and she just starts to cry she's shaking and tears are coming down her face and you know it's 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 not about the bread she's found She's found the Savior. Now she wants to have an interaction with him and encounter with him, and, she, and he's going to save her, and he, and he does. But the, the point is that she's found it at last, and, and there's tears of repentance, there's tears of brokenness, but there's also a happiness there as she partakes. So I picture that. Yeah. You know, That's what I mean by true food. It's yeah. true food. This is what you were looking for. This is what you're searching for all your life. Everything else will, will, will let you down. It will not satisfy you, but this will satisfy you. Yeah, and you know, we know that we were made for a relationship with God. And so it only makes sense that God is the only thing that can satisfy that, that thing that's built into the created order. That's only true. He can do it. Yeah. So I'm just going to sum up the last couple of verses up to verse 59, and then we'll talk yeah. about their reaction, reaction. to him. Yeah. He basically says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of him. Whoever eats of me, he will live because of me. And that's what we've been saying now for this whole time, is that if you, if you believe in Jesus, you'll live forever. And then once again, he highlights the contrast. He said, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, referring to the man in the wilderness. Yeah. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's a guarantee from the Son of Man that uh, if, you, if you believe in him, he'll raise you up. He, you know, he says the same thing to Martha when she comes to him, and she's so sad that her brother's died, and he says, your brother will rise again. You know? That's a great promise. You know, before we go on, because it's going to get pretty negative quickly, but, it, you know, see the beauty, the soaring beauty of this promise. If you come to me and feed on me and, and trust in me, you'll live forever. And and so, to me, this is the answer to the grave, this answer to death. You know, this, this should give us just daily joy and hope uh, because of the, the promises coming from, from this text. So go ahead. Yeah, it really should. Well, like you said, it gets very negative in verse 60, uh, the disciples... It's, it's, it calls them disciples. It's not speaking of the twelve yet, but it says when many of his disciples heard it, they said, "This is a hard saying." Some translations say difficult. Who can who can listen to it? And just talk about why it's so difficult for the natural man, apart from the work of the Spirit of Grace, to receive 
these doctrines. Yeah, well, it, it, the, the language here was, was couched, and, and this is something we need to understand because Jesus openly says this in Matthew 13. The reason he speaks parables or in parables is so that people will not understand him. It's really amazing. It's not parables are given to make things super clear and all that. It just isn't true. It's though hearing they do not hear, though seeing they do not see or understand. What the parable is meant to do is make you come back to him and say, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> it's not, oh, I got it figured. I got it, you know. So you can imagine a standard non-Christian American who is not Bible trained at all. And there's more and more of those surrounding us every day. If you were to find somebody like that at a mall or some public place and go up and say, I have something to tell you. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, blah, 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 just a parable. They're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. They think you're crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if they've heard the Bible before, they know what to do with it. Same thing with this. They ask, I'm going to take it literally. This is a hard teaching. It is a hard teaching. It was meant to be hard. He specifically uses eat my flesh and drink my blood language to make it hard. It's a kind of a come on. It's a kind of a challenge. Like, come and ask me. You don't understand? Come and ask me and I'll explain it to you. So this is a hard statement. It is hard. But look at the next thing they say. Who can accept it? Well, the whole chapter is written to give the answer to that question. Who can accept it? The, one that Jesus, the ones that Jesus chooses? The ones that the Father had given him? The ones that the Father is drawing? They can accept it. They don't understand it right away, but they can accept it. They're not going to walk away. And so this really cuts to the chase. It's a hard statement. What are you going to do about it? Can you accept it or not? The ones who the Father is drawing, they can accept it. I think Jesus response is very interesting he basically says well what you know i'm going to put it in my language he says what happens when you see me ascend to my father he says mm -hmm. what then if you see the son of man ascending to where he was will that before? offend you <laughs> like, <laughs> get offended at that <laughs> are you going to receive it then yeah. you know when he's the judge of all the earth yeah. i think of romans 3 when he says um so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be held accountable to god yeah. when they see the son of man ascended which one day all 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 flesh will see him and then those who have not believed, they, their mouths will be shut. They will understand. Yeah, so true. But he says it is the Spirit who gives life. The mm. flesh is no help at all. And so yeah. really we're only able to understand by the Spirit opening our eyes. Well, you quoted it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says the, the natural man cannot accept the things of God because they're spiritually discerned and they're foolishness to him. So another uh, text, key text, is Romans chapter 8. The mind of the flesh cannot accept the things of God. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. And so we're dealing with the flesh. What he's saying here is, as long as your mind is in the flesh and not transformed by the Spirit, you will never be able to understand these things. So that's one way to interpret. Another way is like, I was always meaning a spiritual interpretation. I was not meaning that your actual teeth should be chewing on my actual flesh. It was always meant to be spiritual. But I think it's more, you will not understand until the Spirit transforms you from a fleshly mindset. So the Spirit gives life. The flesh will not save you. And so as long as you're in the flesh, you will not be saved. Yeah. So again, the response is they actually leave. Many, yeah. It says many in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Yeah, and I think it's beautiful. I, I didn't finish the, the one statement. I, I, you know, He says, the words I've spoken to are spirit and they are life. So you and I are sitting here right now because of the words of Jesus as recorded in Scripture. That's why we're believers. 
It's on the basis of, of the words of Jesus, and they have become for us life. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 2, because we accept it not as the word of man, but as it actually is the word of God at work in us who believe. So these words gave us life. The, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So these are living words as we receive them. It's beautiful. And that's what gave you and I, Joel, life. That's what gives our hearers that are believers in Christ. That's what gives them life. But you're right. So they turned back and no longer followed. Well, you're talking about the words of, of life. This is exactly what Peter says. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, are you going to go away also? He says this to the 12. And then just, let's think about Peter's answer. Yeah. Lord, to whom shall we go? Yeah. Well, this is, this is vital. First of all, we just have to deal with the physical reality of people who had been following Jesus for a while, turning back and no longer following him. This is one of the most grievous things that we're going to find in local church life and in our Christian lives. There will be people we know that will walk with us for a while and talk with us for a while and act like Christians for a while. And then at some tragic place, might happen slowly or it might, ha might happen quickly. They will turn back and no longer follow. As it says in First uh, John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had belonged to us, they would have continued with us. But their going out showed that they didn't really belong to us. So we're going to get to this here at the end in John 6, but the fact of the matter is they never were believers in Jesus. He, he already knew that they were not believers. He actually did the eat my flesh and drink my blood teaching on purpose to weed them out. And so they get weeded out. But here's Peter. And Peter, as always, the leader, the spokesman for them all, says what puts into words what no one else could put into words. Is, you know, Jesus challenges him, said, what about you? Are you going to go? It's an interesting thing for him to ask that, similar to the beginning of this chapter where he challenged him, saying, where are we going to buy enough bread for all these people? You know, Jesus says things to challenge and to test. But he knew what would happen. And so he says, what about you? Are you going to turn back? Are you going to go away too? And Peter, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What an incredible testimony. Just like in, in Matthew 16, you know, uh, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Similar testimony. I like the statement, to whom shall we go? Where shall we go? I, I actually think of that somewhat like Noah's Ark. And imagine like, 50 days into the thing, when you still got another, you know, you got months and months and months to go of the flood. I mean, it rained 40 days, 40 nights, but then they had a long time on the ark. Imagine halfway through that time, you're like, all right, that's it, I'm out of here. Really? Where are you going to go? <laughs> the entire planet's covered with water. There is no one else. And Peter knew it. He says, no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He's going to say those words in Acts chapter 4. But to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I used this. I was counseling someone who was basically, they were, they were in the process of apostatizing mm. a few years ago. And by the grace of God, they actually came back and, and they're now fruitful Christians. Yeah. It's an yeah. incredible story. But, uh, but this young man, uh, he was you know, having problems with Christianity mainly because he seems he didn't want to follow Jesus. So I basically asked him, so what's your, what's your new religion? Since you're rejecting this one, what's your new worldview? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are you here? And of course... He hadn't thought it all out. You know, a Christianity is the only fully formed, complete, uh, you know, airtight worldview. And, uh, you know, we have a beginning, you know, God, eternal God. We have creation. He spoke it by the word of his power through the Son. We have the problem of evil, you know, sin. We have redemption, Christ. We have consummation, heaven, new heavens and new earth. I mean, we have, uh, you know, justice being made right at judgment day. Nothing else has this. 
And, uh, and so for me, I mean, it's obviously centered on Christ, but it's the whole package. It's like, you turn away from that, where are you going? Yeah. Atheism? Yeah, and, and just, just where are you I, going? I love what you're doing, apologetic. I love that. I would say the same thing. The central apologetic for us is Christ. You know, what does Christianity have that, that Islam doesn't have or Buddhism? It's like, easy answer, Jesus. We have Jesus. There's no one like him. There is no one like him in all history. So that's the central apologetic is Jesus himself. And I think Jesus wanted it that way. He was his own apologetic. I am, you know, the bread of life. We have to end on him mm-hmm. speaking about Judas. Judas. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that that's the Important. last verse, but uh, he yeah. says, Did I not choose you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Yeah. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. Right. Talk about just Jesus choosing sure. his own betrayer. Well, first of all, I want to talk about him choosing the 11. Um, and, and I think fundamentally, what he's saying in the cause and effect, you know, are you going to go away? P- uh, Peter says beautifully, no. And Jesus says effectively, the reason, Peter, you're not leaving or any of the other 10 is because I've chosen you. It's just consistent with the whole doctrine we've been seeing here. It's because the Father had chosen them, because Jesus had chosen them, that they weren't going to go away. And so God's election and, the, and Christ's election, because both the Father and Jesus chose them, the, the election is the ground of our security, not our own greatness or our, that we're the believers, we have nowhere else to go and we know it, etc. No, 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 all that's a, a result of him having chosen. So the sovereign action, the election of God is foundational. And yet, one of you is a devil. Now, important, the verb tense, not will become later a devil. That's like the Arminian kind of lose your salvation view where you can be a genuine Christian and then later a genuine non-Christian. Yeah, that, that, can't, is, that can't happen. That it cannot happen. And in this case, Judas didn't change at all. He just hadn't been unmasked yet. He was still helping himself to the money bag. You know, and Jesus said, have I not chose you? And one of you is a devil. The reason he says that is that when Judas would eventually fall away, they could look back at this and say, you know, Jesus knew all along. Jesus, Judas didn't get the drop on Jesus. He didn't get ahead of Jesus. Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. Why did he choose him? Well, Romans 9, he chose him ultimately for the benefit of the elect, you know, so that we could see by contrast, you know, um, a reprobate individual and and he chose him for a different purpose. He didn't choose him for salvation. He chose him to be one of the 12 and to have the money bag. Yeah. So, and one of you is a devil. Interesting words. Do you have any final comments on this section or exhortations for our listeners? Well, I think the vital thing for me right now, just as a believer in Christ, is I need to continue to feed on Jesus, especially his flesh and his blood. I need to go again and again to the centrality of the cross and remember what was paid for me and be joyful, seriously joyful about, about the atoning work for my sins and let it humble me and let it give me life. And I would urge all of you who are hearing us today to do the same. Amen. Well, that was episode 13 in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode 14 titled Preaching at the Feast of Booths, where we discuss John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching 
for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.